So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Finally, John 3, verses 8 to 9. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? You may be seated, and as you're being seated, let's pray. Father, perhaps more than normal, uh, we are acutely aware of the need for renewal in our nation. The need for renewal in our city, the need for renewal in East Vancouver. And so, Father, we ask that by your spirit, you would come. You would surprise us. You would move among us for your glory and for the sake of your kingdom in East Vancouver, in hasting sunrise and beyond. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you don't know me, my name's Jake. I'm part of the team. It's good to be with you. It's good to be in air conditioning right now. Uh, some of you don't have this in your home like myself, and so I'm just going to stay here all afternoon. And if you want to hang out, uh, we can hang out together. There are a number of instances of it happening, of it happening in the first century in Jerusalem. As Jews from around the known world gather to celebrate the giving of the law, it happened. In the 1730s, more than 40 years before the Declaration of Independence, in the Middle Colonies, it happened. In the early 1930s, in Rwanda, amidst a mixed group of Europeans and Africans, it happened. And in the early 20th century, in what is now modern-day Pyongyang, North Korea, it happened. Time and time again, it has been recorded as happening in history, and probably more times than you and I know about. It has happened. Today, it is whispered as folklore in some corners of the church. In other corners, it's ignored as myth and dangerous. Still, in some corners, it's celebrated as the thing that we are working towards, we are moving towards. And whole programs and strategies are dedicated to ensuring that it happens. What happened in Jerusalem, the Middle Colonies, Rwanda, Pyongyang, that it might happen again in our day. Of course, the it to which I refer this morning, is this thing called revival, or as we like to popularly call it, renewal. Revival or renewal. The it we're concerned with this morning, that we're going to be exploring this morning, are these surprising works of God, as Jonathan Edwards called them, that crop up throughout history. What are we to make of revival? And if they are surprising works of God, why preach on revivals? God's going to do it or he's not, right? When we sat down as a team 
to formulate this six-week series in evangelism uh, many months ago, uh, we always knew, I always knew, that we would end here with revival and renewal. Why? Because as we'll see, while revival and renewal are most definitely surprising works of God, you and I, as both the scriptures and history will argue, we have a role to play in bringing renewal, in bringing revival. I want us to end our series on evangelism looking at what happens when evangelism goes viral, when the Lord takes our feeble, awkward, stumbling, strange efforts in sharing the gospel and he lights those on fire by the Spirit when it catches and becomes a forest fire. I want to see this and I want us to see this because I hope at the end of today, your prayer joins mine and many others in this church and cries out, Lord, do it again in our day. Do it again in our time. Do it again amongst us. But I'm getting ahead of myself. There are a few things we have to establish this morning if we're going to rightly understand this phenomenon of revival. And the first really simple question, this is our first point this morning, is what is revival? What is revival? If you're new, if you're visiting, if this is your first time ever in a group of Christians, this is a strange word to you. Let me begin by taking you to John 3. In John 3, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. We find this conversation happening between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus is this teacher of the law. He supposedly, allegedly knows everything, and yet we find that he doesn't know anything. That he has to instruct Nicodemus in the basic ways of the, the faith. There's this new reality now by the Spirit. And so Jesus, speaking on the Spirit, says to Nicodemus these words in John 3, chapter, sorry, John 3, verse 8. He says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The first thing we need to understand about revival is that we need to understand the one who brings revival. The New Testament makes clear to us that no one comes into life-changing relationship with the Father and with the Son outside of the work of the Spirit. Just before our passage, in that same dialogue with Nicodemus, Jesus says to him, look at your uh, Bibles, John 3, 5 to 6. And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. To enter the kingdom of God, to be born into this new family that Jesus is creating is to do so through the Spirit. If you're a Christian this morning, you've had an encounter with the Spirit. The Spirit who now John says, or rather Jesus says, does whatever he pleases. And why is this an important question in our quest to understand revival? Because revival is first and foremost a work of God's spirit and not of man. So 
Some of you, depending on what tradition you grew up in, may be familiar with the name of Charles Finney. Charles Finney. Charles Finney was this Presbyterian minister during what has been called uh, the Second Great Awakening. It happened after the, the First Great Awakening. Uh, in the middle of the 19th century, again, in these middle colonies in America. And, and Finney is probably infamous for arguing that revivals could be created, started by, by following a set core degree of pattern, by following certain procedures, as it were. He writes this, revivals, these are not miracles, nor are they dependent on a miracle in any sense. A revival, Finney says, is the result of the right use of the appropriate means. And so Finney says, listen, if you get the philosophy right and the strategy right, you can start a revival. Now for Finney, in the middle of the 19th century, this meant two things. One, emotional preaching, fiery preaching, leading to emotional responses. And unless there was that emotional response, it wasn't a true revival. Interestingly, in history, we see that pastors begin to adopt Finney's teaching. And we see a shift here from revival to what we call revivalism. From revival to revivalism. And pastors began adopting this teaching and began following these steps. Preaching fiery sermons, instituting the right program, having the right altar call, all that going on. And because it was up to the pastor to elicit and begin these revivals, pastors were getting fired left and right. Because guess what? I can't do this. As loud as I preach right now, and as emotionally engaging as I am, we cannot fake a revival. I cannot make this happen. The pastors began getting canned left and right because they were, according to one historian, standing in the way of souls. But look at John 3. If Jesus' teaching on John 3 is to be believed, our efforts to control or coerce or manipulate the Spirit is just like grasping at the wind. Because think of someone at the park right now trying to grab the wind, right? Out there in the middle of the field. Going like this. I'm trying to grab the wind. It's foolishness. It's silly. He does what he pleases when he wants to. Frederick Dale Burner, he's a Bible teacher, he writes on this passage something very important for us. He says, the Spirit's coming is incalculable and deeply mysterious. We cannot canalize, like force into a canal, right? Program or regulate the Spirit's coming. He is entirely sovereign and unmanipulable. Unmanipulable. A renewal amongst God's people is the sovereign work of the Spirit. And this leads us to the second thing we have to know in answering the question, what is revival? It's a sovereign act of the Spirit that seeks to glorify Christ. Keep your Bibles open. Go through to Acts 2. Acts 2. And in Acts 2 we find something phenomenal in the, in the most literal sense happening. In Acts 1, Jesus had said to his disciples, wait here in Acts 1 verse 8, until what happens? The Spirit comes upon you in power, Jesus says. And so at the beginning of Acts 2, the disciples are doing just that. They're waiting. 
notice that. Don't don't breeze past that. They're not having a seance. They're not doing the right sort of chanting methods or 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 flashing themselves or or like other religions at the time. They're just waiting. They're just waiting. And in Acts 2 we read, the morning of Pentecost, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And filled with the Spirit now, they proceed into this main area and Peter begins unpacking the story of Israel. Now typically the story of Israel before the Spirit, before Jesus, climaxed with who? With David. A Messiah like David was coming. But in his story of Israel, Peter blows past David, and he blows past the prophets, and he goes past these previous heroes, and instead, there's a new hero that the people must see. Right before the passage that we read in Acts 2.36, Peter makes this hero abundantly clear. Look with me. And let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. So whoever Peter's about to mention is both Lord and Christ. Ruler, dominant, in charge, and Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Who is this? Peter tells us, this Jesus whom you crucified. See, revivalism, Finney's revivalism, is not only seen and proven in its method, but it's also seen and proven in its hero. Finney is known for going around and boasting about how many men he had converted. How many men he had converted. And it's interesting, if you want to do this, this is just sort of a nerdy church history thing that I like to do, and it's not for you, that's fine. I'm just enjoying the AC right now. But if you look at a guy like George Whitfield, who preached before Finney, who saw many thousands come to know Christ. If you read Whitfield's biography, you discover that Whitfield is quick to give glory to Christ. Quick to give glory to the Spirit moving amongst those people. But Finney's like, I did this. I figured it out. I cracked the code. There can be many heroes in revivalism, but it can't be Jesus. And if the hero is not Jesus, the message and the messenger is not from Jesus. Again, later in John, Jesus speaking on the ministry of the Spirit says in John 16, what will the Spirit do? It's on the screen. Jesus says, the Spirit will glorify me. How will he do this? For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The teachings and the work of Jesus will be, re- will be reminded of those. They'll be brought to mind and will delight in them, glory in them, celebrate them. The height, the climax, the center of any renewal is Jesus. And not just Jesus, but Jesus crucified. Jesus given for us in our place, on our behalf, for my sin. The height of any renewal centers around, is focused around, has at its heart the cross of Christ. It's not overly triumphalistic. It doesn't promise in this life everything now. It promises Jesus. It promises a cruciform way of living. But that's the genuine one. See, if it is true that Christ is beautiful and glorious and worthy of our praise, 
Revivals have this dual function of showing us how Christ is beautiful and we in turn are not. The same spirit of truth without fail in every renewal shows the individual, shows the participants how desperately sinful and needy they are. So what is revival? What is a renewal? This is the definition. It's a unique move of the spirit to glorify Christ and convict man of sin. Have your Bibles open. Go all the way back to Jonah. You might be surprised to find Jonah in our reading this morning. And and you should be surprised. In the truest sense, Jonah, what happens in Nineveh, is not a revival. Uh, The commentators are generally agreed on this matter. Uh, The Ninevites, these Assyrians, don't come to worship Yahweh. They're not converted. As we think of revivals, what happens in Nineveh is not a revival. And yet, there is something in this story that we must see. Every renewal... Every revival comes with it repentance. Repentance. Uh, Four times in verses 8 to 10 of Jonah 3, in the Hebrew, the word for repent appears four times. Repent, 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 repent. Why? Well, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And if you've done, again, some history, which you might not be interested in, but, you know, I I like it. The Assyrian Empire is, is not good. It's bad. There's all sorts of historical examples of how the Assyrians would torture people and and torment whole nations. In in Jonah 1, we're told that Jonah is sent to the Ninevites in Assyria for what purpose? That he might call out against Nineveh, for their evil has come up before me. And so here are the Ninevites, and they're so evil that that evil is clearly being perceived by Yahweh. It's uniquely evil amongst the ancient nations and the the peoples. And so reluctantly, after a whole ordeal, and if you've read Jonah, you know it's it's a whole ordeal, it's a whole thing, Jonah eventually finds his way to Nineveh. And then we read this happening. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. This is repentance in the, in the most ancient form. Sitting in ashes, wearing sackcloth. This is repentance. He issued the king a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles that neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, listen, and from the violence that is in his hand. In Hebrew, Jonah's sermon is a five-word sermon. The result of a five-word sermon that clearly tells us that it's not about Jonah and it's not about his persuasiveness or his rhetorical power. The result of Jonah's five-word sermon is repentance of a nation from the lowliest members of society to the king to even the cows. There's repentance. 
And the same thing happens in Acts 2. Go back to the New Testament. Acts 2, 37 to, to 38, we read this. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift. Notice that, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Every renewal, every revival, whether it's personal or corporate, involves repentance. And I know, whether you're online right now or in person, this is where I lose many of you. We, we all want resurrection life. Revival sounds fun. Like who doesn't like a party, especially after all that we've been through in this past year? Please just give me a party, right? But none of us, I, I don't want to see my sin. If you're a youth in the room, listen up for a moment. I was your age when I went to a youth camp at Niagara Falls. This is way back in the day. And I can't remember what was happening. It was a big room with lights and smoke machines and probably jugglers and like fire breathers, you know, youth camps as they, as they are. And eventually it came to the, the message. I don't remember what the guy was speaking on. I don't remember what the music afterward was about. But I remember at one point falling to my knees and beginning to weep. David has this phrase in Psalm 51, and it's, it's, it's stuck with me. Maybe you know it. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. And the idea in that phrase is like, you know in Macbeth, where, where she can't get the blood off of her hands? It's that kind of idea. The sin is palpable. It's, it's in front of us. It's, it's yelling at us. It's screaming at us. Our brokenness, our sinfulness, our evil is, is there. Our perversion and selfishness and, and how pervasive it is, is all right there. And it was there for me. And I remember in that moment, in between the jugglers and the fire breathers, calling out to God for mercy. There are some of us this morning, because I have been here, who are playing church. We're just playing church. We like the people here. The coffee that Jen makes is fantastic, right? The community group is super nice, but we're playing church. And we've never encountered in any sort of meaningful, deep sense our sin the deep pervasiveness of our offense against a holy God. And my prayer, my desire for each one of us in the church, as mean as this sounds, is that we would each have an encounter by the Spirit from our kids to our oldest members that reveals our sin, where we see our sin for all that it is. Where David's words, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me, becomes to us a very present reality. And J.I. Packer connects this to revival when he says this, it is with this searching, scorching manifestation of God's presence that renewal begins. 
and by its continuance that it is sustained. And so before we gathered this morning, a group of us gathered to pray, and someone prayed, I forget who it was, that we would be a pure church, that the Lord would work by his spirit in purity amongst us, that we would confess our sin to one another, that we would not hide it or keep it separate, but it would be confessed. True renewal is not momentary conviction. It is proven in the continued and substantive change of the person and the group experiencing that renewal. Renewal. Uh, the decree of the Ninevite king was this, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. There's social ramifications. Later in Acts 2, this newly baptized community of thousands now find themselves living for the benefit of the other, sharing food, money, possessions, to all, Luke records, as any had need. When revival broke out in Korea in the 20th century, uh, one of the missionaries uh, chronicling what happened wrote this. Repentance was by no means confined to confession and tears. No, peace waited upon reparation. Wherever reparation was possible, we had our hearts torn again and again during those days by the return of little articles and money that had been stolen from us during the years. And all through the city, men were going from house to house, confessing to individuals they had injured, returning stolen property and money, not only to Christians, but to heathen as well, till the whole city was stirred. A Chinese merchant was astonished to have a Christian walk in and pay him a large sum of money that he had obtained unjustly years before. The East African revival that happened in the 1920s and 30s was this ethnically diverse phenomenon. This revival itself leading to confessions of racism and hatred towards one another, people seeking forgiveness. And on and on we could go with example after example in history. And what we would see if we took the time was that when God's spirit moves amongst a people and convicts them of sin and points them to Christ, there are social and community ramifications. Whole communities are transformed. And I wanted to say this as an aside, for some reason and we were praying this this morning, it seems that there are two groups of people in our day and age, in our church even. Those who would like us to just preach the gospel and those who would like us to just do justice or just do good works. But do you see how in renewal, both must be present. Both take place. If we are to be biblically faithful, we must preach boldly the gospel of Christ. And we'll get to that in a moment. But we also must be looking at the ways in which we are to bring healing and shalom in the communities that we find ourselves in. But here's the caveat. In all of these renewals, whether it's Korea or, or East Africa or the Middle Colonies, all these renewals are, are temporary. At Nineveh is, right, modern-day Iraq. Pyongyang is the capital of the nation most hostile to Christians in the world. Uh, you scarcely hear the name of Christ 
mention at Princeton University these days, and yet Princeton University was the start, indeed fanned into flame, the first great awakening. Can you imagine that? That's where the preachers came from. We need to have our hope for small L renewal informed and tempered by the hope of the big R renewal that is coming when Christ comes back. I don't know. I'm not a prophet. I don't know if renewal is coming to Vancouver. I pray that it is. But scripture does not give us that promise. What scripture does promise is that there is coming a day, capital R renewal, when all creation will be renewed forever. Forever. A day when Christ returns and forever and ever and ever and ever makes his dwelling among us. We will be his people and he will be our God. This is what revival is. And so my last point, and this is the very, very quick, very, very small point, so don't worry. If this is what revival is, how do we get it? How do we get it? And it might seem like a, like a silly question to ask, right? I've just spent quite a bit of time explaining to you, well, actually, the work of God. It's a surprising work of God. We, we can't manipulate the spirit. So what kind of question is, so how do we get it? Well, here's the tension, here's the mystery that the Bible forces us to live in. It's the tension of God's sovereignty. He will do what he pleases and our responsibility. James has likely read John 3. James knows that the spirit does what he pleases. James believes this. And yet James writes in his letter, the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. We have to believe this Christ city. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So here's what's happening. From before the foundations of the world, it was always God's plan to pour out his spirit on his people on the day of Pentecost, and still Peter preaches. And the repentance of Nineveh would have probably been easier without Jonah, this stubborn, reluctant prophet. And yet God uses an unwilling servant and a five-word sermon to bring to repentance a wicked people. No, we cannot manufacture renewal, but we cannot ignore the fact that God uses people like you and me and our prayers, and our efforts to affect change in this world. So here's how we're going to end this series. We're going to end this series by realizing that this is just the beginning. This is just the beginning. In a very literal sense, in September, we will celebrate our two-year anniversary as a church. Over a year and a half of that on Zoom. Christ City, this is just the beginning. This is just the beginning. And so I pray in two, four, five, 10, 20, 50 years time, should the Lord not come back, that our evangelism would grow 
that we would see in our day a move of the Spirit in this community where people of all walks of life come and encounter the risen Christ. This is just the beginning. You have to believe that. And if this is just the beginning, if this is just the beginning, we need to say a few things right now before we head out on this journey about who we are. If you're new or you're visiting, you came on a great Sunday because this is who we are. The first thing about who we are is this. We are a people committed to praying fervently that God's kingdom would come in power in Vancouver as it is in heaven. We are a people committed to praying fervently in this way. And so beginning in September, we will take up again our rhythm of three weeks of community group and one week of church-wide prayer. And can I say this in a very nice way? That week of church-wide prayer is not for Aunt Mabel's knee, though we care about Aunt Mabel's knee. We're praying during that week that the Lord would come in power by his spirit and do a renewing work in our midst. We're praying the names of our friends who don't know Jesus out loud, that they'd come and believe and trust in him, that that neighbor across the way who is desperately lost would come and believe in him. And can I say one more thing at the risk of, of offending some of you? If Christ City is your home, if you are here, if this is your church, and some of you are new and don't worry about this, but if this is your church, then this prayer meeting is not optional. We are not a country club. I did not get into pastoral ministry and you did not come to this church in order to just gather nice people and do nice activities and play tennis every once in a while. We are an outpost in foreign territory surrounded by enemies, a spiritual one. This is not an optional meeting. We're gonna work hard with childcare. We're gonna work hard doing whatever we can to ensure that you're at this prayer meeting because things more than things, life and death depend on this. If we believe what the Bible says about prayer to be true and revival to be true, life and death depends on this. That's the first thing you need to know about who we are. The second thing is this. We are a people committed to seeing renewal come however the Lord chooses to do it. Here is the real test as to whether we want revival or revivalism. Here's the real test. There's this question we can ask. In my vision of revival, am I at the center of it? In my vision of revival, am I at the center of it? Or we can kind of broaden this more corporate question. In Christ City's vision of renewal, are we at the center of it? Uh, this week, I heard the, the author and speaker, Kevin DeYoung, say something very wise. He said this, we don't want to see revival until we are just as happy to see it start at the other church. Oh, that's convicting to me. I'll just confess that to you. We're praying for renewal, but we're praying not just for us, but we're praying for the one church that is the church in Vancouver. We're praying for local expressions like Westside, and St. John's, and Reality, and West Coast Christian down the street, and City Baptist up a block, and Broadway, and 10th, and Coastal, to bring people to know Jesus Christ. And if we can play some small role in that and give glory to Christ, then please, Lord, would you use us? But we want revival however he wants to bring it. 
The last thing is this. We are a people committed from the pulpit and over pints to preaching the entirety of the good news. What did Jonah preach to Nineveh? It's such a bad sermon. If I, if I got up and preached it, you'd be like, what, what did he get paid to do? He preached judgment. Five-word sermon in Hebrew, he preached judgment. What did Peter preach to the crowds, the largely Jewish crowds who had gathered? Responsibility for the crucifixion of the Messiah who is the Savior. Again, oh, read the room, Peter. Let me make this really easy for you. If you're not interested in regularly seeking the Lord for renewal, both personal and corporate, we are not the church for you. But more than that, while we will, till we're sick and blue in the face, talk about the God who loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to save you, we'll talk, all talk about Jesus who is gentle and kind to sinners wing us back. We will never do that to the exclusion of the Jesus who judges. The Jesus who calls us to repent from our sin. The Jesus who not only sees corporate responsibility, but individual responsibility. The Jesus who is coming at the final capital R renewal with both sword and gavel in hand. This might be hard, what I just said. You might be discouraged, but take heart. Make no mistake about it. The church that prays incessantly and preaches the whole counsel of God is the church that the Spirit loves to descend upon in power. This is the church the Spirit uses. So I ask that you cry out with me, Lord, do it again in our day. Do it again in our midst. Use us, broken, feeble, awkward, strange people like us to glorify your name. Let me invite you to stand. And we're going to read this prayer on the screen. And in this time of worship, let me invite you to take whatever posture you'd like. You can stand, you can kneel, you can have your hands in the air, you can lie flat on your face. We see that all over scripture. However the spirit is calling you to respond, let me invite you to take that posture. But I also would invite you to say these words with me as we pray in response. Let's read this together. Father almighty, we trust that you desire to send revival and spiritual awakening to your people. We believe that you can revive and renew us. And so we pray. We pray that a hunger for revival would consume your people. We ask that you inspire our pastors with messages that will awaken your people. We pray that your people will have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Make the church of today hot. We pray that those who have left their first love would return. We pray that those who have stopped gathering for worship would be convicted with a renewed sense of urgency to gather for worship. We ask you to call out an army of intercessors burdened for revival. 
We desire to see evangelistic zeal consume your church. And we cry out with the psalmist, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? So Father, we pray these things. Desperate, needy, would you come? Spirit, would you blow on us? Amen.